thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts. And Lord, I thank you for just every person you brought today in the morning. And Lord, just your goodness to continue to always bring people and to do your work. And Lord, the work that you're doing in the lives that are so um, without hope, those that have just uh, made bad choices, Lord, and they're caught up in a bunch of junk, and yet you reach down and you allow them to see their need of you and convict them, and they turn to you, Lord, and you're so good to change lives and to transform them. So, Lord, we come just to fellowship with you, that you must speak to us personally, and that we will continue to grow in the knowledge of your Son. So, Lord, I lift every person to you here in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Why don't you turn to Amos chapter 3, please. Amos chapter 3 and 4 tonight. We come to the second division of the book of Amos, the words of the Lord in chapter 3 and 4. There are three discourses or messages delivered by the prophet Amos, probably at Bethel. Chapter 7, verse 13 is where he gets confronted to go away and not prophesy. And he declares that he was a sheep breeder, a seed picker. He didn't call himself. He didn't come from a family of prophets. God called him. Um, all three are prefaced by the words, hear this word. The source and speaker is God. You get it in chapter 3, verse 1, 4, 1. And five one. There you have your three sermons. All three have indictments of particular sins, followed by a corresponding judgment by the words, therefore. That's a conclusion based on no repentance. Chapter three eleven, four twelve, five sixteen, and six seven. All three deal with specific uh, a specific theme. Israel's privilege of knowing God in the past results in greater judgment. That's what we see here in Amos chapter 3. Israel's perversion of social justice in the present and refusal to repent in the past left nothing but judgment in chapter 4. And then Israel's pride in the past and present results in God's promise of future judgment We'll get this in chapter 5 and chapter 6. In chapter 5, you have the lamentation over Israel. And in chapter 6, you have the woes or the warnings. So God is um, so incredibly thorough when he sends his prophets uh, to warn the people, to try to turn the people, to try to show them his mercy, his love. But that is not always the way men choose to go, or women. And we have an entire history recorded of this, uh, beginning with the judgment of uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, followed by Noah's flood and many, many others. So, chapter 3, verse 1, way we have the indictment against Israel. Um, I promise with my glasses up on and off, uh, next month I'll get operated, hopefully... I'll see better or I won't see altogether. One of the two. Chapter 3, 1 says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Israel, saying, You only have I known for all uh, of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. The first two verses here. We have here... The one having the authority and the right to confront Israel. God, through Amos, called to hear the words of the Lord here spoken against that nation that he had raised up. The phrase, hear the words, is an imperative command, not a suggestion. The words are authoritative, reliable, inspired through the prophet. He is giving God's revelation. He's not speaking his own mind. He's not never. A, a, a message of his own. He's simply a vessel of God. That's why they are the prophets of God. That's why they are inerrant and infallible. That's why we know they were carried along by the Spirit of God, as Second Peter chapter one, verse um, nineteen to twenty-one tells us. Now, the Lord Yahweh is the covenant God. Um, they have betrayed Him. He is their husband, if you will. Their master. 
children of Israel here now is not limited to only the northern kingdom, though he's preaching to the northern kingdom and the context is using it for the southern kingdom also. All of Israel, the family, of all the families I have known them, they're divided right now. But God is going to bring them back as one. Today, the people that are in Israel, they're not divided, it's Israel. After the Antichrist, they, when the remnant believes, it's going to be one nation, the remnant. It's not going to be north and south, it's going to be Israel, governed by God. They were one nation when God brought them out of Egypt and redeemed them in Exodus 3, uh, 12. And they will be one nation again. Um, now, God through Amos, in verse 2 here, reminded Israel of their special relationship to him. Only them had he known of all the families. What a privilege. One of the things when you have children as a parent is that you, you, know, you get married and then you have kids and you go to the hospital and whether it's a boy or a girl, you've got to take them home. Doesn't matter. But when you go adopt a child, you get to choose the child. God chose them. Now often we... Um, People feel, well, you know, I'm adopted. Really? You mean someone chose you? They didn't have to take you home? <laughs> God chose Israel out of all the families of the earth. You only have I known. The term I know is one of intimacy and marriage here. Israel is called the wife of Yahweh, as you know. The privilege is... Um, that they had brought a greater accountability and responsibility. God would punish Israel for all her iniquities. Failure uh, would result in greater judgment. Um, the Proverbs uh, speak about that. The parables of Jesus speak about that. Abraham was an idolater when God would call him in Genesis 11. He, he came from a, a, a family of idol worshipers and yet God called them out and he turned he depended upon God in verse 3 on down he says now he gives a series of, of, of questions here and arguments that um, reasonable arguments that deserve judgments uh, they're rhetorical questions that have obvious answers um, there are four illustrations chosen by the phrase here with rhetorical questions to reveal their deserved punishment by God. Verse 3 says, can two walk together except they be agreed? The answer is that they cannot walk together. No, unless they are agreed. This is the first question in verse 3. This is the principle of spiritual oneness and fellowship with God. Amos was walking with God because he agreed with what God was revealing, with what God says. The second rhetorical question comes in verse 4. Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No. Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? No. So, both in mature lion, he roars when he gasps his prey. The young lion in the den, as he has his prey. Not before. The Lord has roared as a lion in judgment from Zion, we are told. Jerusalem having caught Israel. Amos 1-2. God was that lion. He was judging Israel. The third rhetorical question here in verse 5 says, Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing at all? And so in verse 5 here, the answer is once again no. Israel had fallen into the snare of sin and sprung the snare and they were trapped. If there's no trap, meaning a bird 
trap, then the bird's not going to get ensnared. Sin had ensnared them. That was the trap. In the fourth rhetorical question here in verse 6, he says, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in the city, will not the Lord have done it? So this fourth rhetorical question, the answer in this case is yes. God had blown the trumpet through and by the prophets and the Nazarites that he sent. But they did not fear God. That's always the reason God is proclaiming that people would fear and respond in the fear of the Lord. God had been bringing judgment, famine, drought, plagues on the harvest, locusts, defeating them in war through their enemies, destroying entire cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, yet they did not repent. We will see this in chapter 4, verse 6 through 11. They wouldn't turn for any reason. Now notice all four rhetorical questions deal with sounds of hearing and cause and effect. They were inexcusable because God had declared his word. They had an ear, but they did not respond to what they heard. You as parents and I, when our kids were growing up, you would call out to them and give some kind of command or request and and they wouldn't respond. And you'd go in the room and say, didn't you hear me? Oh, yeah. They heard you. They, they just didn't listen. They didn't obey. They thought they could ignore you. And then when you call them out on it, they, they, they're shocked like, you know, like you're being unjust. This is the same picture here. Now, sometimes it works here on earth because of our emotions or our permissiveness, but it doesn't work with God. He knows exactly. Verse 7 and 8, you have the right application of the four illustrations and rhetorical question here. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? God always warns before he brings judgment. Verse 7 is what it's talking about. God revealed his word through his prophets. We've looked already at Hosea. We've looked at Job. Now it's Amos. We'll continue with the minor prophets. We see Isaiah. We see Jeremiah. We see Ezekiel. God has never brought judgment before he has sent his ambassadors to warn the people of judgment. Once again, I mention it all the time because it's worth noting. The very first judgment is back in the garden. He says, if you eat this, you're a dead man. Days of Noah. Let him preach 120 years before judgment came. Sodom and Gomorrah. God sent two angels. And we can go on and on and on. God never brings judgment unless he reveals it to his prophets and he warns over and over and over again. Therefore, man is unexcusable. In verse 8, God the lion had roared, as we pointed out. God has spoken through his prophets, he could do nothing unless he gives warning first. If God brought judgment without warning, God would be unjust. He would be unkind. He would be unloving. He would be unholy. He would contradict his attributes, his very person. So we know when God brings judgment, we don't ever have to think, I wonder if God warned them. If God brings judgment, it precludes that already he has given plenty of warning. Remember that we pointed out that God could not give the land to the Israelites until the abomination, the iniquity of the Amorites was fully come in Genesis fifteen sixteen. there. 
or 1650. And um, we don't know how. We don't know when. We don't know with who or through who. But because God declared it, we know he did. And when he brought that judgment through the nation of Israel, he gave them those 430 years to repent. Because God is just. God is holy. God never brings judgment without giving the warning first. And see here, here you have this affirmation of this. But no one feared or repented. No one. Chapter 1 verse 2 opens up that God's going to judge them. He roars on high. The Lord has spoken through Amos now even prophesying. Now in chapter 3 here verse 9 through 10. You have the invitation to the heathen to come and bear witness of the sin of Israel. That's amazing. God exposes his own. God is righteous. God will do some things that will blow our mind. Verse 9 says, Proclaim in the palaces at Ashdod and in the palaces in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble on the mountains of Samaria. See great tumult in her midst and the oppressed within her, for they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. And so in verse 9, the proclamation is to two nations. First, the palace of Ashdod, one of the cities of the Philistines, the perennial enemies of Israel. God says if that he will humble a person, he will humble a nation if they don't obey him. Here it's his nation. Second is the land of Egypt. They were to assemble on the mountains of Samaria and see her destruction and injustice of oppression over the people. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom during Ahab and Jezebel's reign. Wealth beyond measure, luxury, time of ease, abusing power and authority. In verse 10, the proclamation is of two evils. The people didn't know how to do right. They had been so far removed from God for so many years. Now it's about 270 years since the uh, division of the kingdom from Rehoboam the first, Since the two centers of calf worship in Dan and in Bethel. Now they don't know how to do good. Now our nation has been indoctrinated through liberal progressivism and humanism and relativism so much today that people don't even know how to think logically or critically. All they know is how to repeat quacking statements and accept dumb conclusions because they don't know how to how to think logically and common sense and in in some critical manner. Just try calling Verizon. AT&T or any place. They will read that script. You tell them what the problem is and they, it will take them 15 minutes. It can be solved if you use your brain in one minute. Everybody, everybody follows the script. And if they don't know it, they make it up. It's amazing to me. The evil is revealed by the Lord. Notice that. They don't know how to do right. Kings and rulers. They're wealthy. They store up violence, robbery in their palaces. So the evil is revealed by the Lord. Yahweh. This is not slander. This is not gossip. But absolute truth. Nobody wants to listen to truth. Now you guys look at me. For about an hour, Sunday morning, midweek, tonight. But you guys need to look at the focus. You, I wish you were up here. And you look at some of the faces while I'm teaching. At some of the things I'm saying. And I'm scoping it all out. 
And I see some people pop up and walk out. It's okay. It doesn't matter. See, people don't like to hear truth. They don't like today is, don't give me negative vibes. That's bad energy. Bad energy. People want to live in la-la land. They want to deny reality. You know, the majority of us were loaded or drunk during the 70s, but we lived in reality. Today, nobody lives in reality. They're all living the dream. Look at their Facebook page. <laughs> They're all movie stars. Look up the uh, the applications to dating um, sites and everything. They're all a bunch of liars. They send in their high school picture. It's amazing to me. I'm the greatest. Mm, man, I love myself. Verse 11 through 15, you have the judgment of Israel declared. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, an adversary shall be all around the land. He shall sap your strength from you and your palaces shall be plundered. Thus saith the Lord, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of the lion two legs of a, uh, or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and on the edge of a couch. The judgment would come by the Gentile nation. Look at verse 11. The pronouncement is righteous from the Holy One, says the Lord God. The word therefore looks back to verse 1 through 10. For this reason, the adversary all around the land would sap the strength of Israel and plunder his palaces. This would be Assyria. The remnant will be saved to reveal God's faithfulness in his covenant. Notice the illustration as one of a shepherd who retrieves a portion of the carcass of that lamb that a lion or a bear has taken, two legs, an ear. This way the shepherd could present it to the owner and say, listen, I didn't sell it, I didn't steal it, and I didn't need it. I recovered this from the very lion or bear. David talked about that. <laughs> he destroyed and killed a bear. Tried to steal one of his sheep. The people would be taken captive. There in verse 12. From Samaria to a foreign land. And they dwell in the city of Samaria. At that present time. Feeling smug. Safe. But danger was on the horizon. And they were dwelling in the city of Samaria. Look, look what it says. On the corner of a bed. Or edge of a couch. It's a euphemism for having sex. They were at ease. Luxury. We're going to see their three sins. Gluttony. Wine. And sex. Those three go together, ladies and gentlemen. You can't separate them. So they thought they had it made. They were living the life. But judgment was around the corner. Every nation that has striven for freedom is a nation who has denied itself and known right from wrong, morals and ethics, without being Christians at times. It's when a nation rises to a place of ease and prosperity and arrogance they begin to settle on their lees and just through pride begin to enjoy all their victories, all their wealth. And as they're enjoying this, others are preparing to take them down. And they don't even know when the attack comes. Because there's no precautions. You're so engulfed in your drinking and your partying and your good life that somehow you think you're untouchable. Not so. 
verse 13 down to 15, you have the judgment of God to fall upon Israel. He says, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob. So all of them. Says the Lord God, the God of hosts. So this is the captain of the armies of heaven. That in the day I punished Israel for the transgressions, I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altars shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. And so here in verse 13, the imperative command of Amos was to hear the testimony against the house of Jacob. The authority, once again, the captain of the armies of heaven. When this phrase is used, judgment is coming. He's never lost a fight. Jacob represents self-will, resourcefulness, rebellion. His name was changed to Israel, governed by God. God touched the hollow of his side. He halted. He couldn't depend on himself. He wanted to run from his brother that night. God fixed him, touched the hollow of his side. You have to trust me to defend you. I don't want you to run. He was a conniver. The total destruction was certain. Look at verse 14. The perfect time that in the day I will punish Israel. That day for their transgressions. There is a day of judgment. The religious centers would be destroyed. I'll visit also destruction on the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altars shall be cut off. The fall to the ground. The horns speak of and represent strength. In the tabernacle, we had horns on the altar. Blood would be put on them. Horns speaks of strength. Your strength will be diminished. It will be broken. All the material prosperity was taken away by Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. Besieging Samaria for three years. Second Kings chapter 17, verse 5 and 6. 722, he's go- they're gone. The first to go into captivity, the northern kingdom, the tribes that were on the east side were the first to go in. God's judgment, absolutely just, absolutely well-deserved. How often God attempted to turn them. We're going to see this very clear in chapter 4 as we saw it this morning in depth. Now when you come to chapter 4, you have the indictment against the women of Samaria. To begin with, though he includes also men as we move along. But here in verse 1, he says, Hear the word, here's the second sermon, You cows of Basham, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husband, Bring wine, let us drink. As we said this morning, this is the sin of the women at Bashan. In celebration with wine. They see no nothing wrong with their unjust actions against the poor. The judgment is coming in view of their personal sins. Now, men are usually much crueler than women. God has made the woman more tender, more compassionate. That's why he has moms staying at home with kids. If dad stayed at home, they wouldn't reach their second birthday. There's a big difference. Now, I know we have some Mr. Moms, but it's not natural. It's not what God intended. When there's tragedy, you do what you have to, and God will honor it. But there's a natural and correct order to everything. But when women go bad, it's bad. It's unnatural, ladies and gentlemen. If you look at the violence, you look at the drinking, you look at the debauchery that women are involved in today, and I'm talking about first young women, single women, let alone married women who are not born again, who run with this amoral culture, the new morality, It's atrocious. 
as I said, I, I, it's a tragic thing when I have to say, thank God I grew up in the 60s. Because the 60s were not that nice. But we knew we were wrong. I knew in the 60s what I was doing was wrong. I didn't boast about it to certain people. I didn't flaunt certain things. But as you continue on that road and the progression keeps going downward, pretty soon it's no big deal. Like water off a duck's back. Doesn't bother you anymore. The phrase here, this word is specifically to the women for their in social injustice here. The imperative command appears two other times. Chapter 3 verse 1, chapter 5 verse 1. The women are called cows of Basham, not because he wants to insult them. But he's making a parallel. It's sarcasm. The mountains of Samaria. Here this area of Bashan, which means fruitful, was the territory on the northern eastern side of Jordan. Very plush, very green, good cattle country. In fact, that's the reason why Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh asked for it from Moses. They said, we don't want to go into the promised land. You know, we like this land. It's good. And Moses said, hey, didn't you learn from the last rebellion? We had to go 40 years in the wilderness. No, 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 no. We're going to take care of it. You know, we'll, we'll go and settle the land. Once you're settled, then we'll come back and rest on this side. And the Lord said, fine. So you have um, God's perfect will on the west side of Jordan. You've got permissive will on the east side of Jordan. Those on the east side were the first to go into captivity. Some Christians want to live on the east side of the Jordan. Rolling hills, nice green grass. They have concluded that God has made the wrong choice. They have concluded that they know better than God. They're the first to go into captivity. It always happens. These women had become wealthy and prosperous from their corrupt, sinful lifestyle at the expense of the people abusing them. They're commanding their husbands to bring them wine. They're a bunch of girly men. They're not the heads of their homes. They facilitate their wives and their evil. Now, I don't know all that goes on in the world, but I have a good idea because I used to be in the world. And the way things have gone and where they're at now, there are married couples that just, they just encourage their wives to party with them. And things happen when you both drink and do dumb things and you have close friends and they become a little closer than close friends and lives are destroyed and people get destroyed and vengeance and revenge comes and hatred and murder and all kinds of stuff. Because we try to live in a very unnatural way and say it's natural because everybody can kind of think I can handle it and it'd be fun intellectually. But once you cross that line and there's bloods and guts, it's a whole different ball game, ladies and gentlemen. Now it doesn't look so clean. Now I can't handle it. Now I want my pound of flesh. That's reality. That's why God's trying to turn them. It's only the grace of God. The only hope we have is the grace of God. He makes beauty out of ashes. That's our only hope. As I was telling you earlier, you know, I, I, I see different people and how they respond and everything else, you know. And, um, 
And when people get up and walk out, I could just, oh, oh, I don't, yeah, I could just go, well, I better. But I know that the only hope for people today is that I teach and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only hope for America. If I don't preach it, then I will stand before God. I also have to be careful that I don't abuse my authority over the pulpit and I just think that I can say what I want. Please do not think that I don't think about what I'm going to say. <laughs> Please don't ever conclude that I just shoot my mouth up here. And sometimes I want to say something, I go, I better not. I know that's God. But if we don't speak the truth about the lies and the deception and the destruction of our culture to those around us, they have no hope. We are to be light and salt, ladies and gentlemen, and if we cease to be that, we're good for nothing. And if you're only looking out for your safety, then you are an unprofitable servant par excellence. You have to speak. You have the message. You're that prophet to warn the people of the judgment to come. These ladies were bad news. Bad news. The particular sins they oppressed the poor. Then in verse 1, they crushed the needy. They command their husbands to drink their alcohol. And again, once again, alcohol is bad news with ladies today. Their health in the future, everything else. They're going to be moms one day. Horrible. Verse 2 and 3. So the Lord God has sworn by his holiness, behold, the day shall come upon you when you will take, uh, when he will take away, uh, with uh, fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. This he's speaking about the Assyrian captivity. They would come in and they would take people away with hooks in their jaws and they would drop them, drag them off. They would uh, tear people apart with horses. They would skin them alive, as I said, uh, bury them up to their neck, put honey and let Ants go over them. There's just, they were cruel, cruel people, and people would just commit suicide rather than be taken captive. It would cross populate people to deter their affections to escape and, and to get together and to plot that escape and to just settle down and accept the captivity and be absorbed into another culture with another people. They were wise when it came to capturing people and keeping them from rebelling. And so he swears by his holiness. One of his titles is the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 6, 5 says, Woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Only when we see God as who he is that we realize how sinful we are. If we compare ourselves among ourselves and we're not wise and we end up looking and picking someone who's worse than us so we can look better. We're not dumb. So the women would be taken captive. He's drawing to them, but also the men as they go along. Behold, the exclamation of attention, something not expected. God would bring judgment upon them. Ah, we're okay. Nothing's going to happen to us. Talk to people on the street. Talk to your friends. Tell them what's happening. What's going to happen? That Russia's going to do this. That the United States maybe will be attacked. Oh, that'll never happen. Oh, this is going to happen. They're going to do this. Oh, that'll never happen. Really? Stop and think of all that's happened in the last seven years that people said that would never happen to our nation, economically. The medical aspect of it. If you want your doctor to keep it, you can keep them. You like your policy, you can keep it. That's why we have to pass it so we can know what's in it. Really? Wow. Amazing. Never say never. They would be taken captive. Verse 3. Through the broken wall, the breaches of the city. Straight one ahead the, uh, behind the other and ahead of the other. To a fortress city, Harman. We don't know where it is, but one of the cities that were cross-populating them. They would have 
no idea where they were going. They would be destroyed completely. Everything that they held on to, it confident, their security, it would all be taken from them. The absolute authority again is, says the Lord. This is prophecy. This is not guessing, this is prophecy. Verse 4 and 5, we have the sins of the people that did not stop them from being religious. Religious people can sin and do atrocious things. doesn't bother them. They separate their life from the everyday matters to their emergency God status. Here, verse 4 and 5, he says, Come to Bethel and transgress. And he's speaking sarcastically. At Gilgal, multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifice every morning, your tithes every three years. So he's speaking sarcastic. Come on, come on, bring them up. Come up to Bethel. Offer some more. You do this to your child of your parent as they're being rebellious and arrogant and dumb. Go ahead, keep it up, keep it up, or you're going to end up in prison. Go ahead, keep taking drugs. You're going to end up dead one morning. You do this because you love them. You're trying to get a point across. You're hoping to turn them. This is the prophet. All they're doing is multiplying transgressions, willful disobedience. They're sacrificed every morning. Well, this is not speaking of the everyday sacrifice of the law, but that even if they gave sacrifice every morning, it's not going to please God. God looks at the sin. He doesn't accept it. Makes no difference. He sees the heart. He sees the way they're living. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the free will offering. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. So here again in verse 3, the sacrifice of thanksgiving, a, a, a voluntary sacrifice that indicated that you were in fellowship with God. And yet, as he says this, they were not in fellowship with God. They were out of fellowship with God because of sin. Uh, leaven here is symbolic of sin, the principle of many of the sacrifice. You didn't offer with leaven. Here they're in sin, and, and the symbol of leaven is you're in sin, and you think you're... You're giving thanks to God for what? Are you saying that God is okay with your sin? Are you saying you're pleasing God? He says, you've got sin in your life. There's no way God's going to accept this. Not at all. And he says, you know, you love it so. Because you're pronouncing, proclaiming your free will offering loudly before men. And men hear you and they say, oh, look at it. Isn't he righteous? Look how much he loves God. God doesn't hear it. Because he sees the reality of it. And he does the same with you and I in our heart, our motive. You know, when God rewards us uh, at the beam of seat of Christ, he's not going to reward us for what we did or how much we did. He's going to reward us if our motive was love for God and love for the person we did it for. That's the motive. If the if the motive is not love, it's going to be crispy critter, burned up by the fire. Now that's for reward. That's not for salvation. So people get impressed by what we do and how much we do, but God says that's a zero. He did that to show off. He did that so people could look at him and say, "Oh my, he gave a million dollars." That's why we don't parade what you do here. That's why we don't have fundraisers. That's why we don't put your name on the door or seat or anything else. That's why we don't bring you up and say, this brother has just donated so much and so much. We don't do this kind of stuff. Because what we do, we do unto God and for God. It is to Him that we look towards, no one else. Verse 6 down to 11, the refusal of Israel to repent is an insult to God. He, he, he shows them how many times he tried to turn them. Also, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your 
places, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Clean as the teeth again is not that they went to the dentist. It's famine. No bread everywhere. God was doing this to try to get their attention to turn them. You as a parent, your child starts rebelling, starts doing certain things. You cut back on their privileges. You start disciplining. You're doing it because you hate them? No. You're doing it because you love them. You're trying to turn them. I also withheld rain from you. Drought. When there was still three months to the harvest, I made it rain on one city and uh, withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon and where it did not rain, the part withered. So here he withheld the rain as normal. Before the harvest three months, you have the early rains in October, November, the latter rains in March and April. And to turn them to call upon God, but they did not. They didn't turn to him. He rained it in one city with help from another one. The part that it rained, it was green. The other part was withered. They didn't turn to him. That failed. So then, in verse 8, So two of or three cities wandered to the other city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. So rather than turning to God, they just turned to how can we get water? Let's all just go out there and drink it. Let's get it and bring it back. They're still thirsty. So man's ingenuities, man's um, decisions on how to resolve the issue. Verse 9. I blasted you with blight and mildew. So now he uses the judgment on the crops. When your gardens increase, your vineyards, your fig trees. Your olive trees, the locusts devoured them, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Here's another way God did it. They just refused, they, they, they just ignored God. Verse 10, I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with the sword. So he sent plagues, he killed them in war. Along with your cats and horses, all the booty was taken also. I made the stench of your camp come up into your nostrils, the corpses of the dead. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. He went further. Verse 11. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a brand. Uh, a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. So here again, even as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah, God slew entire cities, trying to turn them. He sent Jonah up to Nineveh. They repented on a maybe. He saved them. hundred years later, they turned back. God brought judgment a hundred years later. Read the book of Odiah. Amazing. Read the book of Jonah. So God went to extreme measures. And sometimes as parents, we have to go to extreme measures on our children. We do it because we love them. Sometimes in the church, we have to go to extreme measures to deal with individuals because they don't repent from their sin. Even as Paul told the Corinthians, you know, cast that young man out of the church that's sleeping with his stepmother. What are you guys boasting like if you're real spiritual because you're not confronting him? Confront him. Call him to repentance. Call him to change his lifestyle. God is holy. But some people say, well, you... you, you the Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. Really? The context is don't judge critically over everything. But we make judgments every day. You make judgments when you write out your check, when you balance your checkbook. You make judgments when you run a, a red light, yellow light, or green light. You make judgments all, all the time. But when it comes to moral and ethical judgments, we can't make judgments. That's foolish. 
Absolutely none. Wesley considered himself the firebrand plucked from the fire as God allowed him to survive the fire that came to his house. God had to work for him, an incredible man. Notice in verse 12 comes the conclusion. I did this, you didn't repent. I did this, you didn't repent. All right. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Whoa. Talk about sober words here. They would have to face God for their sin with their sin. Now, all these things go back to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, the curses. God said in the, in the law, if you do this, I will bless you. If you do this, I'll put these curses upon you. God had promised. Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, he prayed for all those blessings and curses, for all those provisions. That when they were taken captivity, they would call upon God. All those provisions. The verdict of God is conclusive. The verdict of God is complete. Hostile, if you will, based on His holiness, not vengeance. When God judges, it's because of His holiness, not vengeance like you and I. This is not revenge. This is absolute judgment on sin that cannot be tolerated before a holy God. Plenty of chances, plenty of opportunity. The refusal magnifies their sin and conclusively reveals the deserving of that judgment. No excuses. In verse 13, he says, For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind, he who declares to man what his thought is and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven is his name. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. This is the God. This verse 13 is a doxology to the glory of God. Even in his judgment, God gets the glory because he's a holy God. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-present. All of his attributes are to perfection. He cannot make a mistake. He never is unjust. You and I may think he's unjust, but guess who's wrong? We are. And so, what a fitting verse. To him be the glory for now and forever. Amen. And so, while we're alive is when we are to repent. Anybody that offers you repentance from sin after death is a deceiver and a liar. You make your arrangements to go to heaven before you die. Just like you have to make your arrangements to be buried before you die. At least you should. <laughs> if not, someone has to pay the price, right? <laughs> and so God is just, he's loving. And you know, but it's a strange way for God to deal with man. Isaiah tells us 36. He would much rather forgive. I mean, if we went around this room right now and I asked you to share a little bit about your past life without any real details, or has the Lord led you to the glory of God without trying to be the top sinner or anything else, we would be amazed at the grace and the mercy and the love of God over our lives, ladies and gentlemen. You would have to start with me. Your pastor deserves absolute hell. Your pastor deserves to be a crispy critter in every way. It's only His mercy and His grace. But there must be a response to the grace of God and the love of God. If we do, there's such blessings. If we don't, there's such heartache. 
on every level of life. While we're here, and that's not the worst. Once you die, then comes the worst. It's for all eternity. So it's like jumping from the fire pan into the fire. That's why suicide is the greatest deception by Satan. People think by committing suicide, they escape all their problems. They don't. They just make them permanent and eternal. And they leave everybody holding the bag that really loved them with a bunch of guilt and questions that are unanswered. It's one of the most selfish sins. Suicide. Because all you're thinking is of yourself. And Satan wants to get you so caught up with yourself that that's all you can see. And if all you can see is you, it's a very depressing life. We are very depressing <laughs> to ourselves because we think so highly of ourselves. And if people don't think me as high as I think of myself, then there comes a point where I get bummed out because I don't understand why people don't see that I'm so lovable. I mean, I love me. I don't know why they don't love me. But I'm tired of talking about me. What do you think about me? <laughs> Who has low self-esteem? What a lie. God takes the sinful practice of loving ourselves and he says, Husbands, love your wives as you love yourself. Whoa. That means if I would love my wife as much as I love myself in the sinful way, if I would love my wife in the righteous way, the way I love myself in the sinful way, I would be an incredible husband. The natural is to love me. The supernatural is to love my wife. I have nothing to do with it but yield to it. And depend upon God. So he gets all the glory. That's the rules. Of our relationship with God. It can happen no other way. Lord thank you for your grace. Your love and your goodness. Thank you for each person here. And we thank you for your grace over our life. Lord we pray for. Some of the husbands and wives that aren't married Lord for family members, for sons and daughters, friends, people we work with. Lord, you would save them, that they would be open to your gospel, Lord. Use us for your glory as we reach out to them, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Only you can make that decision, no one else. Maybe you're over the internet. If you believe Jesus is God who became man, that he died for your sins and paid the price for your sin, that's the grace of God. It's not enough to know that. It's not enough to just believe that. You must make that your own by acknowledging that you're a sinner. By calling upon Jesus, the one who died for your sin. So that your sin can be forgiven and he can give you a new heart, give you his Holy Spirit, give you his mind. So you can live to his glory as you depend upon him. That's done through repentance. As you call upon his name and ask him to forgive you. If this is your desire, it's by the grace of God. This is your prayer to him and he's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you made that decision, we want to give you a Bible absolutely free. 
Brother John will meet you right there by that door. And he'll give you that Bible and answer any questions you might have. Pray for you and you're free to leave. But don't leave here the same way you walked in if you don't know Christ. Thank you for coming tonight. Let's stand. We'll close in worship. If you need um, prayer, you have questions, I'll be up here in front. Thank you for coming. Lord bless you.